0: Isaiah wrote about 700 years uh, before the birth of Jesus, and his book unfolds God's plan for the redemption of his people over the course of 66 chapters. The first 39 focus on the history and predicted fall of Judah and the surrounding nations. But in chapter 40, there's a significant shift, a pretty significant shift in chapter 40. This section is known by many as the book of consolation or the book of comfort where God comforts his people with the plans that he has in store for them. Isaiah 40 begins like this, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. So in this book of consolation, this book of comfort, we do find four really unique passages. They are songs and each one of them sings of a servant of the Lord. Now there's some mystery here. Okay? with these servant songs, these four passages. Do these songs refer to Israel? Because this was God's calling on Israel to bring justice and goodness back to the world. Maybe they are about Cyrus of Babylon, who did serve as a type of savior when he sent the people back to the promised land. Abraham was a servant of God, Moses, David, the prophets. But as we walk through these passages, we will see that there's so much more going on here. So much more going on here. This man That these songs speak of was a servant like Moses, a servant like David, a servant like Israel, but we'll see that he succeeds where they all fail. He inaugurated what they initiated. People will quibble about whether Isaiah knew it fully at the time as the Holy Spirit inspired his writing, but the servant of which these passages sing is our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, what do we find in these servant songs? In the words of one commentator, we find a blueprint for Jesus' entire mission. A blueprint for his mission, his character, his life, his suffering, his death, his treatment as a criminal, and his bearing the full weight of our sin on his body and soul and his redemption of all things. So, let's read Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9 together. Then we'll pray and open God's word to consider it together. Isaiah 42 Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. The new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would illuminate your word um, in our hearts. Thank you for these dear ones who have gathered. I pray that you would be glorified even now as we read and consider this together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight and yours alone, my rock and my redeemer. We love you. Amen. So we read it earlier in the passage, but you may remember the story when the sons of thunder are jockeying for position in Jesus' kingdom. Um, In Matthew's account, their mother actually gets involved in it, saying, hey, give give my two sons good seats once once you get there. They want want good seats among the powerful at Jesus' table. They want to be in the room where it happens. But Jesus does not mince words with them in Mark 10, 45. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isn't this the paradox of our Savior that we just can't seem to get? It just doesn't seem to sink in, right? It's this, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. We enter the kingdom like children, and our Savior is both a prince and a pauper, a sovereign and and a servant. How can that be? How can we have a savior like that? But this title, servant, that appears in these four passages at the end of Isaiah, fundamentally shaped the early church's understanding of who Jesus was. So much so that many in the early church referred to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. There is so much rich, good news in this book. And when we look at the first beginning chapters of Acts, the title servant is used frequently. But then as the gospel goes out into the Greek speaking world, other titles like Christ and Lord begin to be used more often. Isn't that interesting? But Israelite Christians who are converting would have known this title. Oh, servant. Yep. I know that one from the book of comfort. I know that one from Isaiah. So in this passage, we see that the servant will work wonders. But the question we are going to ask is how will we know him? What will he be like? So today, I want to invite you to look back on his gentle justice and look forward to his restoration. There's two things. Look back on his gentle justice. We'll see that in verses 1 through 4. Look forward to his restoration. So look with me at verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations." Some translations weaken this a little bit by saying something like, here is my servant. But Isaiah saying behold is important because of the way he used that word in the previous chapter, where he's talking to the false gods, the idols of Israel. It's almost as if he's saying, no, look here instead. You've been looking at these false idols. You've been beholding these false idols. Turn, look at this servant. It's putting the servant... In total contrast to the counterfeit saviors that Israel has been turning to, it's as if Yahweh is saying, Look here instead. Here is one who is held fast, who is chosen, who is beloved in comparison to that which is worthless. God's servant is chosen. Do y'all remember back um, when Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 3? My beloved. God the Father speaks from heaven and tells him that. The Hebrew word here for chosen was translated there into a Greek word meaning beloved. And what we see there is an intimate connection between choice and love. Choice and love. Let's, Let's camp out here for a second. This might be more significant than we think. Friends, we don't love those to whom we just feel emotionally drawn. That's not how love works. We love those we choose to develop a relationship with who we set apart in our hearts, our minds, in our time, and in our space. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. This is God's beloved chosen servant. Keep looking in verse 1 says it ha- he has God's delight and he actually has God's spirit as well. The servant is not just chosen for a task. He was chosen because God's very soul delights in him. And as a result, the spirit of God will be with him. Again, let's go back to Jesus' baptism. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, The heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He's chosen him, he loves him, and he delights in him. So many of the Lord's servants had failed him. So many. Yet this one has his full delight. And notice when God says, my soul, it's much like saying myself, the core of his desires. So then this servant, unlike any other, fulfills and satisfies the father's deepest desires for humanity. In the words of one commentator, someone can be chosen for a task without necessarily being approved of or even liked, but not so here. He is not only the Lord's man for the job, he is the Lord's man for the Lord himself." Next, he will bring justice. This Hebrew word for justice, mishpat, is common in the Old Testament. There are many ways to translate it. The sense of it here is that of a judgment, a commandment, or a plan, right? Even in the constructing of the temple, this word mishpat is used for the construction plans. Here is God's will for what the temple should look like, for what the tabernacle should look like. Essentially, mishpat is what God has judged to be right. It's shorthand for God's will, and in many ways, it's synonymous with true faith. What does God want in the world? How has he designed this world to be? That is his mishpat, his justice. So why go into so much detail over this one world? Because we have a tendency, I have a tendency, but we all have a tendency to read a 21st century definition back onto an ancient word. And what we've got to do sometimes is let Hebrew and Greek and the Bible speak for itself and not bring too much of our own things into it. It might make us uncomfortable, but the emphasis of the justice here is on God's holy right decision and plan, and not so much on man's expectations or obligations. The point is is that the servant will make the world how it was meant to be by enacting the Father's will. Now, will his people have a role in that? Yes. Were the people called to exert this justice? Yes, in their own lives, living lives of repentance and faith. But this is God's will. And what is the will of God? One, word, one song sings of it this way. Mercy speaks by Jesus' blood. Hear and sing, ye sons of God. Justice satisfied indeed. Christ has full atonement made all her debt has been cast on me and she must and shall go free. Justice for Israel looked like atonement for her sins, repentance from her sins, redemption from her captors and freedom from her bondage. So the message and work of the servant is to ensure Israel's salvation. She must and shall go free. Look with me at verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. This servant will not shout or cry. But what we see is that he's not domineering or dominating. He will not raise his voice or make his voice heard. Friends, he's not a self promoter, a platform builder. John Calvin put it this way He did not boast of himself to the people, but frequently forbade them to publish his miracles that all might learn that his power and authority was widely different from that which kings or princes obtain. And y'all remember, this is exactly what happened in Matthew chapter 12 after Jesus heals the man's withered hand. Matthew says right after that, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, behold my servant with whom I am chosen. And he quotes this passage. He did not, does not raise his voice. Can you think back to all the times Jesus heals someone and says, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. He's not looking for attention. This may not be what Israel wanted or expected. And I don't think we've changed much, have we? I really don't think we have. We want what we want and we want it now. Daddy, I want it now. She was a bad egg. (laughs) Kids, you don't get that reference. The adults in the room get, some of them get that reference. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The best we think that the best way for us to get what we want is to demand it and to demand it loudly. But listen to what John Calvin says again, there is nothing that troubles our consciences more than we think than when we think that God is like ourselves. There is nothing that bugs us as when we start to think God is like us, because we realize he's not and it upsets us. But this was the type of savior we were being sent. This is the kind of servant that God wanted. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Let's sit with this beautiful verse for just a few minutes. I wish we could sit the entire time or the rest of the day. A bruised reed is not just fragile, it's beyond repair. It's been internally and externally damaged. A faintly burning or smoldering wick doesn't have potential because it lacks the nourishment of oil that it needs to survive. Friends, Jesus does not dismiss those who are bruised and broken by the fall. Do you hear me? Jesus does not dismiss those who are bruised and broken by the fall. He does not give up on those who would be considered useless, beyond repair, damaged goods, He does not pass over them for honor because they are unimpressive and weak. The servant draws near to bruised bodies and souls and supplies the needs of those who don't have much or anything to give. Church, we don't value gentleness like we could. I think at times we do. But gentleness has disarming power gentleness is powerful proverbs twenty-five fifteen says this a gentle tongue can break a bone and proverbs 15 1 says a gentle answer turns away wrath and this servant's gentleness is actually his most profound strength you remember his gentle answer what does he say a fa- father forgive them for they know not what they do and he said that on the cross while he was turning away wrath turning away wrath for us with that gentle answer. The wrath against sin and death that was meant for you and me. So friends, this is the servant. This is what he's like. Behold him. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Not the righteous. Not the righteous, but sinners Jesus came to call. Richard Sibbs says this, God's children are bruised reeds before their conversion and oftentimes after. We're bruised reeds before, during, after. And we have a Savior who draws in here to us. Now, you may laugh a bit, but old habits die hard, so I am going to reference a children's movie. It's just, sometimes you just can't help it. Um, there's a movie came out a couple of years ago called Encanto. It's a story of a family that experiences a terrible tragedy, and as a result, they're gifted this magical candle that imposes on each family member a role, or they call it a gift, right? So you have the strong one, you have the little princess, you have the problem child, you have the shapeshifter who can be anything he wants, and you have the scapegoat, the one who's blamed for everything. We don't talk about Bruno, Okay. But the candle starts to go out and the house starts to crack, literally and figuratively. And only after the whole thing falls down can the family repent, forgive, and rebuild. But guys, the candle going out was the best thing that ever happened to the family. It was an idol. It was the family's righteousness in the community. It was their worth. And if they didn't play their role, what good were they? The pride of the family, not to mention their safety and well-being, was wrapped up in that flickering wick and the roles that came with it. At one point, the grandmother actually sings, we have to earn the miracle that somehow found us. This burden was crushing the family, and it was destroying them. Do you all remember what Jesus said about Israel in Matthew 25? They did not keep oil in their lamps, and they missed out on the bridegroom. They missed him because they didn't keep oil in their lamps. The Pharisees' pride and self-righteousness towards struggling, bruised people was actually what put them at odds with God. Their own sense of justice condemned them, and their pride extinguished what life was left in them. But the servant, the servant is different. He came with healing. He blesses his people with strength to turn from their sin, heals their bruises, and tells them clearly, go and sin no more. I recently uh, really surprised somebody by letting them know that for a short stint of my childhood, we were motorcycle enthusiasts. Um, I had a dirt bike. It was a little Z50. The wheels were probably only about that far apart. And I used to tear up the undeveloped lots near my house. Um, One day I was riding out there, and I hit a rut that a big heavy machinery had made. And of course, you know what happens. The handlebars turn and I go straight over the handlebars and slide for a good ways. And so after a quick, you know, cool running, Sanka, you dead? Like self check moment. No, I'm not dead. Uh, I had to stand up and do the walk of shame back to my house. And I had no idea what the reaction was gonna be. I just wrecked the bike. I just, I'm hurting, but we'll just, I can't, I don't have anything else to do. So I walk up to my house, didn't know how my dad would react, but he comes out with me and we walk back to the bike. And along the way, he tells me a story of when he was a teenager, he was doing the same thing. I mean, and this shouldn't surprise me because I grew up watching him like standing on the seat of a motorcycle, popping wheelies down the street in front of our house. Um, But he wrecked once and slid down this hill in his neighborhood in Baker, Louisiana, so badly that he took off all the skin underneath both of his arms and just kind of had to walk around like this for weeks and weeks while it healed up. You see, he knew what it was like to be bruised. He knew what it was like to hurt. And so he could walk alongside me and help me heal with patience. He could have told me what I, what I had done wrong and he, could have, he would have been right. He could have told me all the ways it was my own fault for wrecking my bike and he would have been right. But at what cost? Friends, restoration is patient and kind because love is patient and kind. I don't mean to be crass here, so please don't take this the wrong way, but that walk back to the house hurt like hell. Physically and emotionally, I was separated from my father in a moment that I needed him, but I knew that he was there, and so I got up and walked to him. Friends, if you are the bruised reed this morning, will you stand and walk the difficult journey of repentance to the one who stands to serve you? I know that walk hurts like hell. I know it does. If you are the one who serves a bruised reed or knows people who are bruised reeds, will you crush those who are already crushed? Or will you bring the gentle justice of our servant? If my father had not coached me later on how not to wreck the bike in the same way, I would have either given up entirely or just continued hurting myself. Instead, he cared enough to be patient and later cared enough to push. It is a loving thing for our servant Jesus Christ to say, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Dane Ortlund in his book Gentle and Lowly says this, Jesus deals gently and only gently with all sinners who come to him, irrespective of their particular offense and just how heinous it is. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. If we never come to him, We will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. But if we do come to him, he doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out at us in the way many of our parents did. As long as you fix your attention on your sin, you will fail to see how you can be safe. But as long as you look to this servant, you will fail to see how you can be in danger." Friends, look with me at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. What's interesting there is that discouraged is the same word as bruised from the previous verse. And faint, same thing when we said a fainting wick or a flickering wick. Do you see the comparison here? The servant will not burn dimly or be bruised, but he will be eventually however not until he has brought justice that reaches all the way to the ends of the earth like fred was saying the coastlands israel had no conception that one day japan would hear the good news of the gospel and respond to it no conception that the people on the islands would actually know the love of god but here it is and when would that justice when would that good news actually go out to all those not just israel You remember when he cried out, it is finished on the cross. It is finished. That work of opening the doors of salvation to not just the Hebrews, but to us. The servant would would have had every right to break the reed and extinguish the candle. In fact, justice demands that we would be broken. But the servant refuses. The servant won't do it. He will not quench what light there is. He will not condemn sinful Israel. And if you find yourself united to this servant, he will not condemn you. He will not condemn you. Instead, he will be bruised. He will grow dim, but not until he rescues his people. So we look back on his gentle justice and we rejoice, but we can't stop there. So often we tell the story and we stop right there. But let's turn verses 5 through 9 and look forward to his restoration. Y'all look with me at verses 5 and 6. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. God had made a covenant with Moses who came down the mountain with justice and law for Israel. But as many of you who are studying Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount know, a better prophet was coming who would stand on a better mountain as a better mediator with a better law and a better covenant. No longer would these covenant signs be outside of us. They would be in himself. And next week as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we will see his body broken. We will see that his blood, the blood of the new covenant, is now given to us in rejoicing, a feast for the covenant people of God. Do you see the change? Do you see what God is doing? This servant is better. Verse 7 to open the eyes of the blind, to bring the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Y'all, until we feel our sin as sin, until we experience the isolation it brings as prison, until we realize our eyes have adjusted to darkness because they've been without the light, we'll never know the joy of this coming servant. We won't know the joy if we don't know we're in jar- darkness. We won't understand the joy of what Charles Wesley sang so beautifully, "'Long mine in prison spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night.'" Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. If you are beholding this servant, I want you all to be on the lookout for restoration. Be on the lookout for it. I know cynicism makes hope for change seem so far away. And restoration may not mean that someone else changes. It may not mean that your circumstances change. But this servant came to change you. One day, yes, but not only one day, beginning now. I cannot loose my own chains, but once I am set free, I can see, I can stand, and I can walk. Verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The false gods of the ancient Near East, the the countries that are around Israel, sought to manipulate fate as kind of an impersonal force. They thought fate was written on tablets, and whoever had the tablets, they they couldn't predict the future at all, but they could seek to like manipulate it in a way. Fate and the future were outside of their control. And so you see here, Yahweh is showing himself as inherently superior to these myths and these human projections. There is no fate. There is the will of God, his mishpat, his cosmic justice. These false gods could never say, I'm telling you what's going to happen because they didn't have control over that. One commentator says this, It is through Yahweh's servant that his merciful new exodus justice will be extended in gentleness and persistence to the bruised, the fading, the blind, and the imprisoned. This servant calling was for Israel, right? Israel was supposed to do these things, but they couldn't. We hear it when Abraham was told that through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And in Jesus, the seed of the woman, Abraham's son, Moses' greater prophet, great David's greater son, the old thing gives way to the new thing. The old covenant yields to the new covenant. Through Jesus, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Jesus pulls up the tent pegs of the kingdom and stretches it out to include the nations. He's making this house bigger. He's inviting new sheep into the sheepfold. And we follow this servant, which makes us a servant of the servant. And in serving him, we accept his mission as our own. We are chosen. We are beloved. We are held fast. We are sustained by the Holy Spirit. And we bring gentle justice and restoration as this servant works in us and through us as his hands and his feet. Behold him. Behold him. Lift up your eyes and see him as he really is, not just as we imagine him to be. I'll leave you with this comfort from Richard Sibbs: Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and take not Satan's counsel. Go to Christ, although trembling. As the poor woman who said, if I may but touch his garment. If Christ be so merciful as to not break me, I will not break myself by despair, nor yield myself over to the roaring lion Satan to break me in pieces. So friends, look back on his gentle justice, but don't forget to look forward to his restoration. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful prophecy. Thank you for your Holy Spirit at work in us. Thank you, Lord, that a bruised reed you will not break and a flickering wick you will not extinguish until you have brought about your will in this world. Thank you so much. Hear our prayers. Receive our worship, Lord. We love you. Amen. Let's stand and sing.